in terms of you know how I would talk about being an effective CEO to our students, um, it's really from a player coach mentality, uh, where you need to you need to be able to do you need to be able to to do the work, understand what needs to be done in the company, but then not do the work um, and step back and guide the team, understand what good looks like, where the team needs to get to, put the right people in place, and then manage the company, manage the teams, manage the individuals to collective success. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hey, Clean Techers, Scaling Clean listeners know we seek out clean economy CEOs for their lessons on building teams and running companies. All our guests to date have developed their leadership abilities by ascending a career ladder, and they've often done that across several companies. My guest today has instead learned his leadership lessons on the job, so to speak. Jesse Grossman founded Soltage 17 years ago, and he's led the company ever since as chairman and CEO. Soltage is a New Jersey-based utility-scale solar IPP company that was founded on the belief that capital costs should not stop the spread of solar. And I actually met Jesse several years ago through the sponsor of this episode, Clean Tech Leaders Roundtable, and it's great to connect with him today. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Okay, let's start with your background. You have, I think, it's safe to say, a unique background for clean tech CEOs. Tell me and our listeners about yours. Yeah, ha- happy to. And I think like most folks that have been in this industry for a while, and I got into this industry in 2005, 2006, now prior to that, there really was not a clean tech industry. There was not a renewables industry uh, that was that was sort of, uh, as broad and as expansive as it is now. And so like like most other folks in this space, I had a past life. And my past life really has informed what, what I'm doing currently and, and, and the why of why I'm doing it currently. Um, I was a tropical rainforest ecologist for many years. I studied science. I realized I liked being outside and, uh, and, and setting up good scientific questions that would lead to ideally um, good science projects that would influence conservation and sustainability outcomes. So I spent a lot of time in the US, you know, getting good training and then and then overseas, uh, East Africa for many years, Southeast Asia for many years, running large landscape level ecological surveys, largely looking for um, justification of, of why rainforest should be um, kept in place uh, based on you know, the, the megafauna that was inside of it or, or rare and endangered species. And that, I have to say, was was a really nice time of life and uh, and, and a very useful bit of work that um, that appreciated doing at the time. However, uh, after a couple of years of doing this, I started to see some patterns emerge. And those patterns were, were very negative, all of the, the sustainability and conservation features of the world that, that I was keen to work on and work in. For the long term, I would be doing a, a project in, in Africa, 
in a, in a you know, relatively untouched, you know, virgin rainforest, host to, you know, a large, number of uh, large animals. And then two years later, would understand that a business interest wanted to harvest the timber from that. And uh, unsustainably, that forest was cut down and, um, and clear cut. I was working in uh, in in Southeast Asia on some some coral reefs and uh, looking to justify a marine park getting set up, and that was entirely derailed because there were some offshore natural gas deposits that were found that uh, that were then um, given into a concession to be mined. So I saw this happening, and I said to myself, I'm a fairly pragmatic person. You know, I'm going to be very frustrated if I'm from you know an NGO perspective. Um, from a, a nonprofit perspective or government aid organization perspective, wagging my fingers at governments and big business interests, saying, you know, do not do that. That is that is wrong based on this science. I, I, I said to myself, that's not going to be a, a winning game. And I will be somewhat depressed if I if I keep doing that my entire life. So I need to, you know, see what is, you know, what what is the difference maker in these equations. And it was the businesses that were coming in. And I need to figure out how to capture the ability, strength, power, determinism of a business and harness it for the sustainability objectives that, that, uh, that, that I hold so true to my heart. And so that was really the transition where I said to apply to some, some good grad schools, to, uh, the analytical side of and how to run teams. I had to I had sort of been, and raise money to some extent. I had, I had picked up in my past career, but I needed to speak the business language. Uh, went to uh, a great set of grad programs at Yale, um, and there's there's others in, in uh, Duke and, and Michigan that have similar programs focused on you know the 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 the, the cross link of sustainability and business, and uh, and then started Soltage started Soltage there. Um, so that was uh, that was the that was the decision to found Soltage. <clears throat> Why that made sense at the time, you know, it's clear that solar and renewable energy technology made sense. Uh, but at the time, you know, back in 2005, the opportunity was not ready to be picked up by the broader market in a manner that would push it forward at, at scale or speed. Uh, and that was due to a couple of things. Capital was really mispricing the assets, um, solar, solar energy technology. Um, regulatory risk uh, was was seen as a you know, as a much larger risk than it that it ended up being, uh, simply because you know the regulatory markets hadn't been working for a long, long period of time. Um, there were questions about contracting risk. Are customers going to pay um, for that? And then <clears throat> it was very clear that as a capital intensive asset, you know the owners themselves were not well set up to uh, to be the the offer. Um, where you, know, you are in the business of, of running a big factory and making widgets. If someone says, well, why don't you put a big solar asset you know, on your roof or adjacent to your land, um, you know, you've got to come up with capital for that. You've got to come up with the operational protocols for that. That didn't make any sense for that owner. Um, and, and they probably weren't, we're not going to do uh, renewable energy at scale. So really, it was clear that a business platform needed to be created that would take on all of those roles and simply deliver to the client the commodity needed, which is the, the kilowatt hours. There was you know, a good good history of IPPs uh, in, in the U.S., and um, it seemed that the time was right to, to create an IPP for solar energy provision. Starting a company is a pretty gutsy thing to do, particularly when the technology 
you're going to base your company on is at such an early stage as solar was 20 years ago. You were articulate about what catalyzed your decision to found Saltage, but were lessons that you learned in the rainforest, were they applicable to running a company? And if so, what were they and how did they apply? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, the answer is yes. Um, you know, one of the one of the great joys about life is, is that you're always learning, and uh, and I think many of us are always kind of creating threads based on past experiences and uh, and bringing those to bear in current current challenges, current problems, current opportunities. Um, you know, work working in the rainforest, uh, you know, you're often far from resources, uh, bringing together teams. Um, and so, you know, you are you are needing to set direction. You are needing to focus your team. You are needing to clearly communicate the goals of what you're, you need to do, and and pull everybody together to achieve the same outcomes. Off times where you've got, you know, really you know disparate uh, disciplines working together. You got somebody mm. cutting the trail. You've got somebody back at camp doing logistics and, and cooking. You got, you know, various people taking different pieces of scientific data. You know, if you think about it, it's not that different from a, from a company, um, you know, with, with many different sort of departments that need to work seamlessly together. Um, and then from a logistics perspective, you need to have raised the capital and gotten the buy-in from, uh, from whatever funding source you have, which could be equivalent to, to a board. So I would say, I'd say yes, Mike, absolutely. Jesse. Look back at your career. Who were the most important mentors, and what did you learn from them? Yeah, well, Mike, I was really fortunate uh, to start the business uh, with with my co-founders at Yale, and um, and at that school, as you can imagine, the professors there um, are, are have uh, are great thinkers and are really looking to equip the next generation of doers with uh, with their skills and knowledge. Um, First one I would call out was a professor there named Bill Ellis, uh, a former lecturer, and also the former CEO of Northeastern Utilities. And from this gentleman, I learned really how a utility company CEO thinks about providing services, reliability to a distributed network of, uh, of, of power purchasers. The second was also a professor up there. Her name is Marion Chertow. She was a real early in innovator in ecological and economic systems thinking. And also had practical experiences setting up waste energy companies. So from her, I was able to get many themes of entrepreneurship, early capital raising, and just the nuts and bolts of, of setting up a business that has many moving parts and complexity in terms of energy provision services. Finally, I would call out David Cromwell. And he was a the professor at business school where this class was actually, um, where, where, the, where Saltage was, was uh, founded. Um, he was a Wall Street scion for 30 years uh, of a career prior to being a professor, running private equity and venture capital. So he had analyzed tens of thousands of businesses, and, and his, he and his team had invested in thousands of businesses, you know, many billions of dollars. And to have him and his co-teacher, Maureen, looking over me and my team's shoulders as we were doing initial customer um, sourcing, business plan analysis, financial modeling. Uh, total addressable market scope, you know, those sort of things um, you know, came second nature to him and the observations and thoughts were, were invaluable. 
Wow, what a slingshot. That's <laughs> I think a lot of people listening to this will will be retroactively jealous of you. <laughs> All right. You and I met through Cleantech Leaders Roundtable. I know that you're up there in the New York City area. So presumably you've had the opportunity to compare notes with other CEOs, people who've been more traditionally tracked to a CEO job where they're coming up in finance and they're getting ascending jobs and they're working across companies. When you compare notes with those people, with what your experience has been like, where you've been the CEO from the start of one company for almost two decades, what have you observed your experience uh, differing from their experiences? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, and 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 we we do try to you know get together in, in terms of others you know C level folks running businesses either in you know same industry and separate industries um, and and compare notes frequently because that's one of the one of the important things about staying fresh, staying agile, staying innovative in this space. So, but I have to say, talking with other CEOs, what very quickly emerges is that everyone has had very different experiences and paths getting to where they are. And there are very few molds or modalities that lead one to the title of CEO, um, for whatever that means, short of starting your own company. There are a number of uh, points that, that are consistent. Most other successful CEOs that I talk with, they're serious subject matter experts. They have a passion for learning. They have broad interests and experiences. Um, and that all translates into an ability to be uh, to be a good CEO. Um, from my perspective, yes, there was a significant level of difficulty and challenge into growing into this role, but it has not been the same role for the last 17 years, as you can. Oh, inter- yeah, interesting point. Yeah, yeah, as you can imagine, you know, being a CEO of a, you know. Of a venture capital-backed company is, is very different from being a CEO of a private equity-backed company, which is very different from being a CEO of an institutionally funded company. And there's different stages, there's different <clears throat> evol- roles that um, that have evolved, and different challenges and growth points that have had to uh, be overcome as we've moved through the business life cycle over the last 17 years. Okay, that I know that's a that's a very deep well we could climb down into, but I got to tell you, I can't jump over that delicious distinction you, you just pulled out. How would you summarize for our listeners? What is the difference in being a CEO of a venture back company versus a PE back company to one that is now stood up on its own and is, is maturing? How would you just table those differences? Yeah, yeah. Well, Mike, I'll, I'll start by saying that, um, you know, w- one of my mentors who we didn't talk to said that if you are, if you are fortunate enough to have a job for, for over 10 years, um, you're able to really, really do a lot in that position. So being 17 years in on this position, I feel very fortunate with what we've been able to grow and how personally I've been able to grow and learn and transition um, as this company has transitioned through these stages, and it certainly hasn't been alone. Um, it's been with uh, with an excellent uh, and 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 you know evolving set of uh, colleagues and investors um, that that have been along on this ride with us. Now, looking backwards over over seventeen years, 
um, and the different stages that we have gone through, capital-based, private equity-based, now institutionally uh, funded, you know, it has been, I would say, a challenge of um, navigating an industry that continues to mature, where the, you know, from the early stages to, to the late stages, you know, opportunities being unclear, opaque, small, hard to capture, risks being numerous um, to, to, you know, risks being understood, mitigated, um, as this industry has, has gotten more and more mature. I think the traditional rubric of investment um, makes sense here. Um, you know, venture capital, you are you know, working in a, in, a, in a market where, you know, revenues are not particularly clear, business plan is still coming together, customers are, are not known and difficult to find. And, and that was a, that was a, an interesting stage of, of the market um, and, and certainly an interesting stage of Solfish when we were navigating through the few solar markets that were available in the U.S. and the changing regulatory landscape, convincing investors that this was a good place to put um, you know, increasingly mature capital, and then executing on that with, with customers and creating a, a, an initial base of revenue for the company. Moving into you know, the private equity phase where you're a bigger company, you're funded, you've got revenues coming in, but there's still significant um, risks ahead, perhaps not so much in the broader market scheme, but in terms of how the business can scale. Um, that brings its own you know, set, of, set of risks in terms of which markets are being selected, how much capital is being allocated to each one of those markets, gets more into organizational construct in terms of how you're setting up your company with the various divisions and roles, responsibilities, delegated authority there. You know, there you're getting to a stage where, you know, as a leader, <coughs> you are not able to, you know, run the entire company or do all of the work. And so you really need to make sure you've got excellent colleagues, um, ideally folks smarter than you and uh, trained in different, in different areas that, than you're trained on board to, to navigate and continue to grow through that. And then getting to a mature stage of a company, you know, there you've got, you know, you, you, you've been, you know, either sort of ported into a market or you've been working in a market long enough where the, the total addressable market is somewhat scoped out, uh, where that market uh, is going is, is also scoped out. The opportunities are, are more established. And at that point, it's about, you know, can you efficiently run a larger company and have the right people in, have the right culture created, have the right, you know, in the institutional investment dollars and going into opportunities on a consistent basis. And all of those have all of those have had had their challenges and um and 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 real opportunities. Um, I think that drives home a number of things that that I try to keep fresh about myself and, uh, and, and sort of personal goals that I have to always be learning, always be in a space where there's growth, and and that has and, and always be working with with real you know high caliber people you know in the company you know as customers and as investors, and and that has. You know, that has continued you know, every single day that I wake up, and I feel very grateful for that. Good. Okay, you quit your job tomorrow. You go back to Yale, and you are a guest lecturer at the business school. Your first lecture is sharing with your students what the role of the effective CEO is. 
what's the guts of that lecture? Yeah. You know, Mike, thanks for going there. I do love teaching. Um, you know, I've got some some friends and colleagues who uh, are, are professors at Columbia and Yale, and they regularly pull me back uh, to, to give guest lectures, you know, with cl- uh, on classes that, that, I, that I wish were taught when I was at school. Um, and, uh, and, and so I hope to, I hope to do that, uh, at some point someday in terms of, you know, how I would talk about being an effective CEO to our students. Um, you know, it's really from a player coach mentality, uh, where you need to you need to be able to do both. You need to be able to, to do the work, understand what needs to be done in the company, but then not do the work, um, and step back and guide the team understand what good looks like, where the team needs to get to, put the right people in place, and then manage the company, manage the teams, manage the individuals to collective success. So with that, you need to understand all parts of the business. You need to set the the goals and then watch the team do the work. Um, There's a real discrete focus on where are the problems coming from, who are the people that are in the various seats, and then where's what's coming down the, the pike from the future, being able to keep keep your head above the fray and understand how to how to innovate and keep the business relevant, keep addressing the markets and, and customers coming in the future. The CEO needs to be pushing the company, needs to be pushing the pipeline of business, needs to be uh, pushing the internal knowledge base to get to where the market is going, ideally before everybody else gets there. So big points are communication internally and externally. That's not only being a, being a mouthpiece, but but having having two ears and listening to the great people that are working with you and that are present in the space, it's being able to convey ideas and storytell a bit, and then it's about establishing consensus and buy-in. That needs to happen on a daily basis, you know, with your team, with your partners, with your board, with your investors, with your customers. It's constantly about creating the win-win situations, which you know, thank goodness. In a growth space like renewable energy, this is not a zero-sum game. Yeah, so it makes for it much sure. easier to establish consensus and buying, even with folks that otherwise might be competitors. For sure. One of those students after your first lecture comes up to you and says, Professor Grossman, would you advise me to work up a corporate ladder, then be a CEO, or should I leave school and try to start my own company, then I'll ride as CEO for 17 years like you. Looking back, yeah. which would you advise them to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll I'll give you an answer, but I think it'll reveal a bit of my science uh, bias here. So I would, I would, I would, I would, you know, counsel that student that, you know, the numbers are not with you. Just, you know, being frank, uh, you know, startup CEOs, uh, the numbers are the numbers are do not look great in terms of, you know, coming out on the other side with an exit or running a mature business. But all that being said, that's absolute right time to, to be doing this you know, out of undergrad or out of grad school. And, um, and the knowledge and skills that you will get by really um, putting, uh, jumping into the, to the problem set of, of business creation with both feet are, are invaluable and skills that you'll take into other, other walks of your life as, as well. This is a good time to take advantage of, you know, the risk tolerance that one typically has coming out of grad school or undergrad. And, and, and this is a time, you know, where if you think you've got an idea, you know, give it a shot before, you know, you've got 
other, you know, frank, frankly, needs, you know, uh, needs, you know, on your time from family, needs on uh, having a stable revenue stream, because that's typically not guaranteed up front. Um, I do, you know, sit back and, and tell people, you know, really think carefully, though, before you do this about your business model. And start with your work from a scientific hypothesis perspective. So line up your business idea and then try both with yourself as well as with trusted friends, colleagues, and mentors, and ideally experts in your field, to convince yourself that you should not do that. Try to disprove your hypothesis that you should do that. And if you oh, can't that's do it. that. That's, in, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then if you can't do that, give it a shot. And if, and if you're doing it, you know, really jump in with both feet and, uh, and try to make it a success. Broadly speaking, hiring is always cited as one of the most challenging parts of leading companies. What have you learned about making new hires? Um, that is a that is a great question. Hiring is so important to the business, maybe the most important part of the business. Um, first off, you need to have a really clear idea of what the role is, particularly in important positions, mid-level or senior level positions where you don't have internal candidates who you know. Having a clear idea of, of what the role is will allow for you to either to, to put together your position description and or recruit. Um, understand that you need to get ahead of this. You know, look at a forward org chart. Understand what positions are, are needed and what you're going to be filling into a couple of quarters ahead. And just be very realistic with yourself that, that all hiring, if you're doing it right, will typically take longer and more and be more ex- expensive than, than you had anticipated. Do you have a go-to interview question? And if so, what is it and what does it tell you? I really like to throw people off the questions that they have prepped for. And that is that is one of the most important things that I try to do in terms of interviewing people because I want to know who people really are. Um, so I like to see how people have responded to challenges and problems that they've had in their past careers, <clears throat> in their past positions, you know, in their life. I really want to be specific with folks about what in their past accomplishments they have taken ownership over. What have you actually done there? You know, it's very easy to speak generally about, I was on a team and we accomplished X, Y, and Z. What did you do? How did you do it? Uh, what support did you have? Um, and and what, what did you own out of that? And then I also like to get people talking about their extracurricular activities, just uh, what sort of hobbies they have, what sort of foods they like to cook. This is, again, you know, getting people off of the questions that, that they had probably prepped for and, and understanding, you know, what kind of a person is this? Um, somebody coming into the team needs to not only be able to technically do the job, but there's a real fit component that needs to be there if you're looking to keep your culture strong. What's the guidance you'd offer on firing people? That is the flip side of the coin, and that's an unfortunate reality of, uh, of, of running a business. So the first is not to shy away from it. <clears throat> you, know, you need to start off by hiring the right people and training them up. You need to give people that you had hired all of the right tools and access to be successful. But if you see that someone isn't working out, don't wait too long. Um, I think you know, humans have an unconscious bias uh, that allows for us to justify keeping folks that are optimating, operating suboptimal. But in reality, um, someone operating at 70 or 80% of what a position could be really hurts all of the folks involved. It hurts the employee because they're not getting the feedback that they need to pivot to a different 
company, pivot to a different career, innovate or work differently to be long-term employed. It harms the company as initiatives are not pushed forward at the speed that they need to. And then it harms the culture of the institution. If folks are kept along for the ride that are not traveling in sync with the, the other employees. One of the most interesting questions we've recently started asking guests is what habits or practices they use to stay on top of their game. And I've heard everything from attending opera to weekend hiking to getting up at 5 a.m. What's the set of hacks that Jesse Grossman has found that keeps him on his A game at work? Well, Mike, I would love to have a day that starts with getting up at 5 a.m. and then <laughs> doing doing some hiking and then attending opera. So I think <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't I don't want to represent those all were in the same human. Those are just <laughs> those are that's each one of those is a practice from a separate human, just so you're clear. Very good, very good. Under understood. Understood. So I think it's I think it's critically important uh, to keep your 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 body and your mind in a healthy place in a sustainable way. Um, and, and at least for myself, that's been critical. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that is a very important mindset. You know, sometimes you're sprinting to, to against the deadline or a deal that needs to close or something like that. <clears throat> but if that's how you're, you're running yourself, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's not going to be sustainable. So it's the simple things, you know, getting enough sleep. Paying attention to your body, you know, be it yoga, exercise, meditation, those all need to be sort of core parts of your of, of, of the lifestyle that are, that are somewhat non-negotiable. Um, I find it you know very important to surround myself, and I suggest to folks to surround themselves, you know, both professionally and personally, with healthy people. Uh, it will help keep keep uh, keep them on track, and then. You know, there's a constant process of checking in, right? What worked one year is not going to work the next year. What worked five years ago is not going to be appropriate for what you need five years from now. So in the you know, whole philosophy of an unexamined life is not worth living, um, you know, life should be, and it's appropriate to be challenging and stressful, but it also should be rewarding and a source of joy and happiness. And so checking in and making sure that you've got the right balance and that those priorities of, of feeling you know, like you're successfully surmounting your challenges and, and taking on the right new tasks and learning that is resulting in, in products and processes that you're that you ultimately have, you know, joy and happiness from, you know, those priorities need to be emergent. Looking back, Soltage's success to date, has it been more reliant on what you and your company chose not to do or on what it chose to do? That's a great question. And you know, we're we're 17 years in. We've deployed, you know, well over a billion dollars and we're operating across 25 states. And we would not have gotten here, particularly in our startup and venture capital mode, if we didn't focus on <clears throat> focus on what we do and make that a, a very small sliver of the universe of potentials and and say no to everything else. Um, so that's really discipline and discipline in terms of what is in scope for this business? What do we need to be focusing on above all else to make this quarter successful? This year is this year successful, and then leaving all all else aside, um, you know, as a as a business leader and for folks in the company, there will always be things pulling in a thousand different directions. 
And so really having a crisp idea of what the business is supposed to do, where the business builds value and what leads to success, that sort of discipline and mentality that needs to inform each and every time allocation decision. Um, and that's particularly relevant in the renewable energy business where we're in a growth field, but time is our one non-renewable resource. And so we need to very carefully schedule what we do against those activities that are going to build clear value. Is Jesse Grossman a climate optimist or a climate pessimist and why? Oh, Mike, that's a tough question. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm a species optimist. Um, from a climate perspective, we are at a carbon level from a parts per million perspective, where I believe we are past the tipping point for the massive climate changes that we are starting to see. Um, you know, those include sea level rise, you know, large climatic events, temperature events. You know, it's not a debate anymore if this is happening. And we've seen the writing on the wall um, to the extent that we wanted to read that writing since at least the 1970s. So I think that we are having massive climate changes and that's not gonna change. That said, however, humans as most animals are amazing at adapting. And I believe our species can adapt and innovate ourselves out of trouble faster than the climate events will update. I have two children with my wife that I am so happy and proud to have brought into the world and I think that is the ultimate pessimism to the optimism uh, that I feel. Fair enough. That is a great place to end. Jesse Grossman, I have loved reconnecting with you through this interview. And you are as wise as I remember you being and more experienced than when we last talked. And I think our listeners are going to benefit from both. So please accept my thanks for getting on with us, having this conversation, looking back at what you've been doing with this company, because it's really, it's remarkable. And I think it's something that we can learn a lot from <clears throat> having gone from the rainforest to sitting in a corner office 17 years later is pretty cool. So I appreciate what you're doing. And I want to just express our thanks for you getting on and sharing your, sharing the, the view from the rear view mirror you've got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, I'm uh, more excited about, about the next couple decades in the U.S. Uh, renewable energy space. And I uh, very much thank you for having me on your show. Real pleasure to connect with you and your listeners today. This is Scaling Clean, a production of TigerCom, and I'm Mike Casey. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to our show free anywhere you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>